Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6, Wednesday night, I, I was so gratified with the wonderful response and feedback I've received from Wednesday night on David's search for repentance, critical moments in the life of King David. And this morning is his search for valid worship. Why do we, why do we talk about David's search? Because David is not operating. Sometimes we project back Backwards, David is not operating on a New Testament theology. He doesn't have 2,000 years of Christian teaching. He doesn't have the book of Ephesians to talk about spirit-filled worship. David is searching through this. David lived 3,000 years ago. David lived 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And, And therefore, he is searching through in his own experience to try to find meaning in these things. And this morning is David's search for worship. Now, you know, it's easy to do a good thing in a bad way, or in other words, to do the right thing in a wrong way. I heard about a guy that came to his pastor and he said, Pastor, I'm a a respected businessman in town. The church treats me with dignity. The, The community looks up to me. And he said, Pastor, my wife just treats me like garbage. And I, I wonder if you can help me. The pastor said, actually, I'm glad you've come to me. He said, I've been waiting. I've been seeing this happen, and I was waiting for you to come to me. I I hated to just step in and tell you, but I have a word for you. He said, the reason your wife treats you like a wimp is because you act like a wimp. You've got to act like a man. He said, what do you mean, pastor? He said, assert yourself. Stand up to her. Speak up. Be a man. Well, the pastor didn't see the guy for a few weeks, and then a few weeks later, he saw him, and he said, well, how's that going for you? He said, well, it's, it's mixed, pastor. He said, I'll tell you what happened. He said, I came home from work the day after you told me to start acting like a man. And I walked in the house and I said, now, listen, woman, I want my supper. I want it on the table. I want it right now. And it better be good. And he said, my wife said, how would you like to not see me around here for a while? And he said, I remembered what you told me to stand up to her and act like a man, assert myself. And so I did. I said, well, that'd be just fine if I didn't see you around here for a while. And he said, well, how'd that work for you? He said, well, on the third day, I could see her a little bit out of this eye right here. <laughs> it's easy to, do the, to try the right thing in a wrong way. Now, that is actually at the heart of the story that we see in King David in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's David's first an abortive attempt at authentic worship, and then his second and valid attempt. I want to read a lengthy passage. I know that it's not customary to read an entire chapter, but there's just nothing in this chapter that's dispensable to the message. So I want to read the whole chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, 
30,000, think about this, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who dwelleth between the cherubim. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart, you might say an ox cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and psalteries and on timbrels and on coronets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had broken forth in anger upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Let's just pause a moment. Perez in Hebrew means to break out. It's often used in a military context uh, like uh, an army that's surrounded, like say the 101st was surrounded at Bastogne. They connect their troops in one place and break out. That's So it's saying here that God broke out on Uzzah and killed him. And David was displeased because the Lord had broken forth in anger against Uzzah and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obedidom, the Gittite. A Gittite is anybody born in Gath. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obedidom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obedidom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obedidom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was that when they who had bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he, David, sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, now look at this, Saul's daughter. She is David's wife. She is David's first wife. But it describes her as Saul's daughter. It's very important. Michael, Saul's daughter, looked out of a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as to the women, to the men, in other words, to every adult, male or female, to everyone a cake of bread and a portion of meat. And one translation says a cake of raisins. I think it's probably a translator who was nervous over the original Hebrew, which says a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michael, again, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. 
and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of those worthless fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. And David said unto Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of his, of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord and I will yet be more contemptible than this. And again, willing to be base in mine own sight. And of those handmaidens whom thou hast spoken of, of them, I shall be had in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, the third time, therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. Put your hands on your Bible and let's pray together. Father, in these next few moments, we pray that you will brush aside all the obstructions to divine communication. Speak to us by your might in the inner person of every listener. We thank you for this. I believe you for it here in this house. Those that are joining this fellowship of believers now from around the world via the internet, bless them there in their homes, in their houses, in, in more than 60 countries, got thousands upon thousands of people who are part of us and we part of them. May this word penetrate to their hearts as well. In the wonderful name, Jesus the strong son of God. Amen. Amen and amen. When David had, by the time we encountered David in 2 Samuel chapter 6, he had uh, unified the kingdom. He has lived through a terrible and horrible time of his life. He has fled from Saul, his father-in-law, the king. He is hidden out in the Judean desert. He has lived in the cave of Adullam. He has raised up a, a small army. He has lived among the Philistines, which was humiliating to him and difficult. He nearly lost his life to his own small army, a 600 light unit cavalry unit, who nearly killed him because of the disaster at Ziklag. He has seen Saul kill himself in battle. He has lost his best friend, Jonathan. And now he has reunified the kingdom. He's brought together his own tribe of Judah and Benjamin, the tribe of, of Saul and the other tribes, and brought them together and unified in a new way the kingdom of Israel. And David was a, not only a great poet and a warrior and a, and a, a, a military man and, and all the rest of the things, he was also a great politician. And he knew that if he kept the old military capital at Hebron, which was the capital of the tribe of Judah, that the other tribes would say that he was uh, that he was still going to give Judah favor. If he moved the capital back up to Benjamin, where Saul had ruled, then his own tribe of Judah would say, he's abandoned us and he's just become like Saul. Now Judah's going to be the redheaded stepchild. He's not going to love us anymore. So David said, what I need is a neutral capital. And so he conquered the city called Jebus. It was owned by the Jebusites. And David conquered that city 3,000 years ago, a 1,000 years before Jesus was born. David conquered Jebus and renamed it Jerusalem and made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. And it is still the capital of Israel yet again today. It always will be until the Lord returns. Now, David wanted to bring the blessing of God to his new country and his new capital. How could he do that? The the central figure, the central artifact of worship and the experience of God to the Israeli people was the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. 
David pitched a a tent for it, a tabernacle, if you will, in the new capital of Jerusalem. He felt that it was appropriate that the political and religious streams of, of Israeli life would be unified at Jerusalem. That it would not only be the political and military capital, but it would also be the spiritual capital. And that he would bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts and establish it in this tabernacle, this, this tent that he had pitched in the city of David at Jerusalem. He wanted to do it with fanfare. David never did anything small. So he wanted to bring this, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts back to Jerusalem with a parade. 30,000 soldiers marched with him all the way back up to the old military capital of Baal Judah. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant. They load it up in an ox cart and they have this massive parade. 30,000 soldiers. There's brass bands. There's girls that are twirling batons. They got floats, you know, that say, welcome back to Jerusalem, Ark of the Covenant. They got shriners with little hats and tiny little cars that are driving around. This is a great parade. People on the sidelines are throwing confetti and they're shouting. It's a great parade. The only problem is that David has made a major miscalculation. The Bible is perfectly clear, and David should have been aware of it if he wasn't, in the law of God, that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts should never be carried in an ox cart. It should never be carried any way except one way, and that is that with staves of acacia wood put through the silver brackets and carried only on the shoulders of the priesthood. They put the Ark of the Covenant up in an ox cart. The sons of Abinadab, who's been storing the Ark of the Covenant, they're the honor guard. Ahio goes in front, and this poor chap named Uzzah stands behind, and they're marching along, and the brass band is playing, and the soldiers are marching, and all oh, people are cheering. It's so exciting. The Ark, the, um, the ox cart goes down into a little creek bed by the threshing floor of Nahon, and when it does, one wheel goes into into a, a pothole, and the cart shifts like this, and it looks like the Ark of the Covenant is going to topple out in the mud. The most natural thing in the world. We, we, we can hardly blame him. The most spontaneous thing in the world is to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling out in the mud, and poor Uzzah reaches up to prop up the Ark of the Covenant and The second law is broken, and that is that no one can touch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. And poor, stupid Uzzah reaches up to hold the Ark of the Covenant, and he's struck dead, falls face down in the mud. I love understatement in the Bible. The next verse says, and David was displeased. (laughs) I'm just guessing he was. You want to talk about how to end a parade? Just let somebody be struck dead right in the bottom of the creek. Now, what about Uzzah? What about Uzzah? We struggle with that. What about Uzzah? We always wonder, did Uzzah go to heaven? I mean, it wasn't some kind of horrible, intentional sin. It was just just a a stupid and irreverent act. He shouldn't have touched the ark of the... I, I believe, my own self, I believe he went to heaven. And I believe when he went in, he said, Lord, really? Because... Because I was trying to help. And I think God said to him, you can come in. You can come in because your sin wasn't really evil. It was just stupid. But I, I need to make it clear to you, you don't prop me up. I prop you up. 
So David says to himself, look, the Lord has broken out. This is a fascinating turn of phrase in Hebrew, Perez Uza. It's as if David said, we had God cooped up. We thought we had God figured out. We thought we had him confined in a box, in an ox cart. And God has broken out on Uzzah and killed him. He says, I can't bring this to Jerusalem. I, can, I don't even want it around me. Look at, he says, yeah, this is powerful. Everybody talks about how powerful the Ark of the Covenant is. Yeah, it's powerful. It's killing people. And so he says, I'm not taking this. I'm going to stop the parade, no matter how embarrassing it is, and I'm going to park this thing somewhere. And David looks, and over on the side, watching the parade, you know, he's waving his little Israeli flag, (laughs) got his kids with him, you know, and and David turns, and there's a farmer named Obed-Edom. What do you think they called him for short? Was it Obed or Dumb? So he turns and he says, what's your name? He says, well, I'm Obed-Edom. I own that farm right there. And David says, we're going to put the Ark of the Covenant at your house. It just killed a man. (laughs) Well, what do you say? What do you say to the king? We're going to put the Ark of the Covenant at your house. He says, well, okay. uh, I'll put it in the basement and put a tarpaulin over it and... I'm going to try to keep the kids off of it. (laughs) But how long are you going to leave it? I told you, David is a politician. He says, I'm going to remember you. (laughs) Anytime a politician says that to you, just put your hand over your checkbook. I'll remember you. We'll come back for it. And David tucks his tail between his legs. The musicians stop playing. And they start back, they start back to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, David promptly forgets Obedidom. A few months later, he suddenly remembers the guy. Oh my. Oh, he says, I thought about that poor, stupid farmer. Oh my gosh, he said, I bet there's a hole in the earth. I bet he's dead. I bet his kids are dead. The cows are in. Oh man, he said, what have I done? And he tells these two guys, he says, go down and check on this guy. And they come back and they say, your majesty, you're not going to believe what's happened down there. And he David said, oh, tell me. I knew knew this. Tell me. They said, no, your majesty, you're not going to believe it. Everything in this guy's life has been blessed since you put the Ark of the Covenant at his house. Everything is blessed. The fields around him are given three bushels an acre. He's given nine. He's getting nine bushels an acre. His cows are giving more milk than he ever has. His livestock are multiplying. His, his barns are full. His silos are full. Everything is being blessed. He, he's, he's happy. He's flowing. His cash flow is fantastic. And, and his wife is pregnant. Everything. So the, 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 everything that he touches is, is turning to gold. And David says, you know, I meant to bring that thing up here. Now, listen to me on this. Sometimes we start to do the right thing in a wrong way. We start to worship in a way that that we want to do it correctly. We want to worship the Lord, but our flesh gets in the way. We get into a pattern which is of us and not of the Spirit. Remember when Jesus said to the woman at the well, God is a Spirit and He longs for those to worship Him who worship Him in truth 
and in spirit. Now, sometimes you can understand what a passage means better by inverting it and saying it the other way. If God wants people to worship him in truth and in spirit, he does not want people to worship him in deceit and flesh. He wants us to worship him in the true spirit the way he wants it. David generated this parade himself. David used a mechanism of worship that was not pleasing to God. He overreached. He was drawing attention to himself in the wrong way. And it was all in the flesh and it ended badly. But that which we turn away from in fear, we often remember in blessing. When David saw the blessing at the house and on the farm of Obed-Edom, he said, look, I want this power in my life. I want this power in the capital city. I want this in Jerusalem. I want it in the tabernacle that we pitch. And I want it in the heart of this nation. I want this power. But this time, we have to do it right. This time, we have to do it right. And so David goes with the same parade, takes the same band, same floats, everything. But this time, the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant as it's supposed to be carried. And the Spirit of God comes upon David and upon all the people. And they go six steps. It says that they go six paces. The parade starts, the bang, the bass drums playing, playing bugles, they're laughing, having a great time. They go six steps. And David says, stop. And he stops right there and sacrifices oxen and fatlings. He makes a, a great sacrifice to the Lord. He says, I want to begin this whole process of restoring worship. In my search for worship, I want to begin right now with blessing God. Now, listen to me on this. It says that when they get to Jerusalem, more sacrifices, more blessing, more fatlings, more rams. I, I'm, I want to say this, but I don't want you to misunderstand the motive. We've already had the offering. We're not going to have another one. I'm not, I'm not trying to jack the offering up. I just need you to hear this. I believe that giving to God is a valid, enthusiastic, joyful, liberated act of worship, just like singing or clapping your hands or any other act of worship. I believe that when we give as David gave, when we give as David gave, we release something inside of ourselves that is at the very heart of worship. I was talking with a guy the other day, and he said he was committed to restoring Davidic worship. He said, I'm going to restore. I don't know what he meant by that, but the more he talked, I felt that he and I were not on the same wavelength. I want to restore Davidic worship. Listen to me. If you want to restore Davidic worship, the first thing you have to do is sing in Hebrew. The second thing is, what is really happening here? What is it really about? Not just duplicating David's actions, but imitating his heart. Finding that spirit of grace and generosity that gives and gives joyfully and bountifully. I, I, I believe that, that giving is an act of worship. Now, the second thing is this. Then David says, I want to worship God with joy and with liberty. And David dances before the Lord. This is, this is the, this is the troublesome part of the whole passage. And this is the one where people stumble. What is really happening here? 
David is not trying to establish a pattern for worship. He's not saying, okay, now for the next 3,000 years or the next 1,000 years till Messiah comes and the next thousands of years until he comes back again, everybody has to do exactly what I'm doing right now. It is a spontaneous act of his own overflowing joy. David dances before the Lord. He is wearing, it says in the King James Bible, and it says he is wearing a linen ephod. Um, I heard one pastor characterize this as a loincloth, but that that would not be consistent with my research on an ephod. An ephod would be an overlet, a couplet that might look like a full kind of cooking apron. Comes over your head, comes across the shoulders, ties on the side, comes down the front, and then comes down the back. If you see a picture of the old uh, ancient priest, the high priest, they might have a beautiful white garment that covered them completely, and then this other garment that came on top of it. That would be an ephod. Now, we, we don't know that it was open on the sides. There's no word in that which says only an ephod. It says that David danced before the Lord wearing a linen ephod, but we don't know that it says only an ephod. So we don't know. He may have had other clothes on underneath it. Michael, his wife, accuses him of exposing himself. So perhaps it was open on the sides, and that was all he wore. But what we know is that David was dancing before the Lord without without self-consciousness and in liberty and joy, that he was giving praise to God. He was not demanding that anyone else do it his way. There's no place in the scripture where David goes up and down the street saying, all right, I'm dancing, you dance, I'll have some of the guards kill you. There's no place where he's requiring anyone else to dance. He is dancing himself, but he does not expect anyone else to do it his way. You know what I think? He had 30,000 troops there that had been with him through war after war, battle after battle. Here's the king. David, by this time, is in his, as my research is able to say, in his late 30s or early 40s. And David has blood to his elbows. He's tired. He's been in battle after battle and narrowly escaped death on multiple occasions. And now he's filled with joy. He's dancing with liberty. And I believe that the soldiers stood on the sideline with their spear in hand and their sword on their hips. And they said... Look at the king. Look at the king. Isn't he happy? Look at the king. Look at him dance. And they took joy in it. But there is no place where David tries to require them to dance like he did. This is very important. The last university where I was the president, after one of the services, one of the college girls came up to me and said, Dr. Rutland, when we're dancing, jumping up and down, you don't ever jump up and down. Why don't you jump up and down? I said, baby, it's in my heart. It's not in my hips. I want, I believe what God wants is for us to have liberty before him and liberty with each other. In other words, I look up here, these beautiful young people jumping up and down, dancing and everything. And I think that's a one. That's great. I love that. It inspires me. It makes me happy to see them happy. I love to see that. I could, I could dance like that through one song, but you'd have to call 911 before the song was over. They're just things at different times in our lives. And, and people have different kinds of, of levels of emotional expression. There are people that are just more emotive than others. They just express things with more joy, more enthusiasm. They're, they're more delightful. You ever t- take kids to the zoo? And you get three kids, they're all siblings, all got the same DNA. And the first little girl says, that's a lion, that's a lion. 
And her little brother says, wow, look at there. It's big, isn't he? <laughs> now, what's that about? People are different. You know, here's a verse of scripture that we quote all the time, but we usually use it to mean that it's liberty to allow me to do what I want to do. We don't use it to mean I give liberty to everybody else. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. It means that I find the liberty of God to worship him in my way. It also means I liberate you to worship God in your way, that you find your expression of God. You're in the search for worship just like I am. Now, this often stands in the way of married couples. So I'm going to speak very directly to you. I want you to hear me. Not always, there's no rules, but often women are much more emotional and expressive in their worship than men are. So you often have women who have their hands raised, they're worshiping, or they're jumping up and down, and the husband's standing there like he's saying, oh, man, everybody's looking at... Why is she doing all... And then you got the wife who's jumping up and down saying, if I'll just jump a little more and grab him, he'll jump too. So she's jumping, and she's trying to get him jump, come on, jump. And he's on one. She's on one. That, that causes a lot of tension in a marriage. What we've got to do is be able to release the other person to express their worship to God in their own way. So the other person may simply be a quieter and more contemplative expression of worship, but the heart of their worship may not be any different, may not be any less some uh, time ago, I preached at our Orange County Church in California, and after service, a man came up to me and talked about this in his own marriage. And he said, my wife is always on me. When we're singing, why don't you put your hands up? Why don't you worship? Why don't you sing? He said, Dr. Rutland, I can't sing, and it embarrasses me. I'm afraid I'll sing in the wrong place, and I, I can't sing. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. I listened to Brother Franklin. He is so handsome and trim and talented, musical instruments, lead singing, sing solos. It just, it makes you want to slap him, really. It's just, <laughs> and it seems to me sometimes that every spirit-filled Christian in America is a soloist. And, and I, I always want to say, Lord, what am I, a chopped liver? I just want to know if there's anybody in the house today that is with me, that you are in the vast host of the tone deaf. Will you raise your hand? Thank God for your confession of faith. I, I appreciate it. That, I, I'm glad you were honest. It's, it is perfectly okay for you not to be able to sing. So I said to this guy, I said, look, I've got a suggestion for you. You all know, you all know that I have a, an ongoing sort of fixation on the Lord's prayer. So I said to him, when she's singing and worshiping God, why don't you put your hands up and begin to say the Lord's Prayer real quietly, just over and over and over again through the whole singing, just say the Lord's Prayer. You can say it dozens and dozens of times. And she'll think in a crowd, you know, the music is loud and everything. She won't be able to hear you. She'll think you're singing. He said, I'm going to try that. The last time I preached at OC, I saw him and he came up to me and he said, let me tell you what happened. He said, finally, after a few Sundays, she said, I can't tell you how it thrills me to see you with your hands up singing along. It's the first time in our whole marriage you've sung in church. He said, I decided I'd just tell her. So I told her, baby, I'm not singing. I can't sing. What I'm doing is I'm worshiping the Lord with the Lord's prayer. I'm just saying the Lord's prayer. She said, does that 
Does that work for you? He said, it's wonderful. She said, I'm going to try that. <laughs> now, the point I'm making in all this is that there may be different ways of expressing. If we can liberate each other to worship in our own way. Now, what about those of us who cannot sing? We're just absolutely tone deaf. I have a word of encouragement for you. When you sing, God is also tone deaf. Isn't that wonderful to know that? Because God hears, God hears your heart and not your music. So when you sing, God is standing there listening. And he says, the angels are all behind him. And he says, oh, look, look at him. Isn't he, oh, isn't that beautiful? Listen to him. Isn't that beautiful? And the angels are all behind God saying, oh, yeah, that's, that's great, Lord. God is tone deaf. The angels can hear. So let me give you a practical word. God is tone deaf, but the people around you are not. So if you cannot sing very well, I can't sing. I cannot sing. I sing in the key of K minor. I, I asked the pianist this morning if he could find the key. He, he took him 20 minutes. No, I, I can't sing. I try to lend a richness, a variety to it. I try to sing in three or four different keys in every bar. I think it, it creates some variety in the music. But what I've learned is this. If you cannot sing very well, sing, but just sing a little more softly. Now, where are those of you that can sing? You raise your hand. I don't mean you're a soloist, but you can sing. You stay with it. You raise your hand. Now, listen, there's an obligation on you. You've got to sing louder. You've got to carry us, and you have to drown your husband out, sister. Are you listening to me? So we'd, we rejoice in the liberty of that worship. Now, the second thing is this. Not only does David find generosity with God, liberty in worship, he also begins to express generosity horizontally. After he sacrifices, after he worships, after he dances, then it says that he gives to every man and woman, every adult in the city of Jerusalem, every, every one of them, a, a, a side of beef and a cake of bread, a, a loaf of bread and a flagon of wine. I have no idea what a flagon of wine is, but I suspect it's enough to get a good buzz on. It's... <laughs> Here's the point. Imagine, imagine what that cost. Imagine what that cost. I believe that David, in giving generously to the people, bankrupted the treasury of Israel. That God brought that back and the immense wealth of Solomon in the next generation was because of the investment of David in the previous generation. Give and it shall be given unto you. So in other words, we find an expression of generosity with each other. Husbands, giving gracious praise to your wives. Pour the compliments on them. To your children, tell them how wonderful they are. Brag on them, build them up. And being generous in practical things. When my wife and I first got married, we went out to breakfast one time right after we got married. And she said, I'd like to have a small glass of orange juice. She said to the waitress, I said, baby, have you seen small glasses like this? Why don't you get a large glass? She looked at me and she said, can I have a large glass? I said, why? 
Sure, darling. Go ahead. Have two. No, I said, what, what's the matter with you? Of course you can have a lawyer. What are you talking about? She got tears in her eyes. She said, Mark, my whole life, my dad would not allow us to order a large glass of orange juice. Look, there are just times when I know you want to be frugal and modest and all the rest, but there are times when you need to just be generous, just be gracious. You look, you take your child out for ice cream and say, I want a double dip. I want a double dip. No, you'll never eat to the top and will fall off. They don't want a lecture. Just give them two dips. So we see these things then. A genuine and earnest heart for God. Liberation both vertically and horizontally. David's not trying to make anybody else dance, and nobody's trying to make him stop. Furthermore, you see this generosity to God, sacrifice, giving. Then you see horizontal generosity. David is giving to people because, and it's, it's open-hearted. It's open-hearted. Giving liberally to the people. He's not adding it up. Just give. And then finally, there's this. One of the painful parts of the story. David heads home, and his first wife, Michael, is watching from the upstairs window, and she's furious in her heart. She's waiting for him with her arms crossed, patting her foot. David comes home in an expansive mood. He's been blessed. He's blessed the people, and he's in a generous mood. He's ready to buy her anything she wants. When he walks in the door, he says, baby, I'm home. What do you want? Mink coat, Cadillac, tell me, what do you want? Now, now listen to me, girls. When your husband comes home in that kind of a mood, be careful what you say next. She says, well, isn't this a great day? Isn't this great? The king of Israel dancing in the street like a pervert. <laughs> look, at, look at you. You've embarrassed me. What's, what's that all about? First of all, She's concentrating on herself. David is dancing before the Lord. She is filled with self-consciousness. You know what she's thinking of? She's thinking of her Monday morning bridge club. One of them is going to say, well, saw the David got loose in church yesterday. <laughs> Two hearts. David is thinking about the Lord. Michael is thinking about Michael. She's got her own self in, in this story. Secondly, she is processing her hurt. She cannot get past her own obsession with her own wound. She's lived a complicated life. My heart goes out to Michael. But she is so saturated, clutching her wounds to her breast and screaming, mine, mine, mine. She is angry at David, angry at God, angry at life, and she can't move over into worship because she won't let go of her wounds. There has to come a moment in worship where you say, Lord, I know what's happened to me. I know who I've been through, but God, I let go of them and worship you. And she can't let go. She can't let go. The last is this. Three times it refers to Michael as the daughter of Saul, the daughter of Saul, the daughter of Saul. She is angry, and David says, I know what you're angry about. He says, you're not embarrassed because I danced. 
You're making all that up. That's a, that's a smoke screen. What you're really angry about is that God removed your dad from the throne and put me on the throne. She's married to a king. She ought to be a queen. Listen to me, girls. There are a lot of women that can't become a queen because they won't quit being a princess. It has to come that moment where you're no longer the daughter of Saul. You become the wife of David. Otherwise, you can't move on into the joy of the moment. And she says, you, you embarrass me. You embarrass the nation and you embarrassed yourself. Listen to David's statement of liberty. He says, now listen, you can't condemn my heart. My heart is open before the Lord. I was dancing before the Lord. And I'm going to humble myself before the Lord. I will humiliate myself before the Lord if God tells me to. I will give him everything I am and everything I have. He said, let me tell you something else. All these people that you think that I embarrass myself, they will honor me more because my, my worship is genuine and they know it. They discern my heart, which you don't. But he said, I, I will dance before them and before the Lord every time. The last verse of the chapter is pretty tragic. It says, and from that day on, Michael never had another child. We don't know what it means. Does it mean that her bitterness, poison of her life, sealed up her womb? More likely, that is a possibility, but more likely, it means that the bitterness of her life sealed up her relationship with David and that he never came to her again, that he never slept with her again. That's most likely. At some point or another, as we come into our own search for worship, we have to let go of our wounds. We have to let go of our self-absorption and our self-fascination. And instead of being self-oriented or other-oriented, we become God-oriented. We begin to worship him and find that expression of worship which works in my life. That's the great thing I love about a church like Free Chapel is that the first word in our title is free. That we are free to worship him and we set each other free to worship. Nobody telling anybody else what you have to do or can't do or any of these things. I was talking with a brother the other day, a denominational pastor, and he kind of laced into me. So I've seen you guys on TV. He said, I don't like that clapping. He said, that church claps all the time, clapping. He said, we don't do that in our church. We don't do that. I said, look, I don't, I'm not saying, you, you know, people don't go to hell if they don't clap. I don't, don't clap. But why do you think we shouldn't? He said, because it's not in the Bible. He said, there's nothing in the Bible. I said, well, actually, it is. The Bible says, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. That's in the Bible. So in our search for worship, we find our freedom in him trying to find the spirit and truth and not flesh and deceit. We find the grace to give to God graciously, generously, open-hearted, giving love offerings, thank offerings, blessing offerings, not just, not just calculating our tithe to the penny, but saying, Lord, I can't give you enough. We find generosity in the spirit of worship with each other, and we let go of our wounds and judgment on each other and move into the liberty of where the Spirit of the Lord is. Now listen to this. 
where we come to the, to the heart of worship. There's all kinds of music and all kinds of ways to sing. Sometimes we sing in, in joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Just, it, we just want to dance. We want to, we want to rejoice. Sometimes it's praising, talking about God, how wonderful he is. Sometimes there's testimony music. We, we sing to each other and share in, in testimony. For example, I'm standing on the promises of God, my Savior. I'm testifying to you. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. That's a testimony song. I'm trading my sorrows. That's a testimony song. But the sweetest, where it moves into the most place, is where it becomes intimate. Where it's as though I am alone with God in the presence of thousands of others who are also alone with God. So if I say to you, my wife is beautiful and my wife is a wonderful cook and my wife is a sweet friend and my, my wife has been faithful and loyal to me for 48 years, I say, oh, I'm talking about her. I'm praising her. Do you see? But if I go home and I say to my wife, I'd just like to tell you my wife is beautiful and my wife is, is perfect and my wife is, is faithful, my wife is lovely, Allison would say, what's the matter with you? I'm standing right here. Talk to me. So I take her in my arms and I say, I love you, baby. I love you. Every time anybody says I love you to someone else, there's an inherent question in the statement. I love you. Do you love me? That's the heart of intimate worship is that God says to us through the cross, I love you. And we answer, I love you too. I love you too. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.